This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Ford Foundation, an independent, nonprofit, grant-making organization working with courageous people on the front lines of social change worldwide. Visit FordFoundation.org to learn more and sign up for the Disability Futures Festival on July 19th and 20th. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. Today we're going to be talking about disability in America and the caregiving crisis that has become such a huge debate in this country. I'm delighted to welcome two people who can bring both policy expertise and personal experience to this debate, which will focus on people who are receiving the care. Day Al Mohammed and Maria Trattown, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Happy to be here. Super thrilled. Well, let's start with brief, brief visual descriptions of ourselves. I'll go first, and then Day, maybe you can follow, and Maria go after that. I am a white woman. I have brown eyes and brown collar length hair. I'm sitting in front of a bookcase of books and I'm wearing a sort of green, brown, blackish jacket, which is a slight nod to the autumnal weather we're experiencing. Day, over to you. Hi, my name is Day Al-Muhammad. My pronouns are she, her. Uh, I'm an Arab American woman with uh, brown skin, a new favorite red jacket. Uh, behind me are uh, bookcases like everybody puts because we want to pretend we're a little bit smarter than we actually are. Um, and uh, actually, I'm coming to you from the Washington, D.C. area, which is the unceded lands of the Powhatan, the Pamunkey, and the Anacostan. And with that, I will pass it on to Maria Town. Thank you for that land acknowledgement day. This is Maria Town. My pronouns are she, her, hers. <clears throat> I'm a white woman with brown hair that's pulled back in a ponytail. I'm wearing deep red lipstick, pearls, and a black top. Uh, behind me is a bookcase and a cat tree. Thank you both so much for that. Um, Day, I'd like to start with a question for you. In this discussion about caregiving, so often the people who receive the care are not incorporated. And there's a mantra in the disability world, nothing about us without us. Could you talk about the importance of incorporating the, the recipients of care? Sure. Uh, actually, I think you can get that answer from, from almost any person with a disability and actually from any marginalized community. If you think about the way stories are told, um, the perspectives that any issues are told from, they're framed outside the community. And so what happens is uh, what is deemed best for a community, ways to resolve problems, improve living conditions, standards, anything, then it's done by, based on assumptions. Um, and I think nowhere have we seen more of that than within the disability community that's been done unto that community because the idea is there's this historical cultural perspective um, of uh, people with disabilities as as needing care, as in um, uh, questions about capacity, regardless of what that disability is. Therefore, uh, it's been a battle in many ways to say, you know, uh, we can speak for ourselves. We can tell you what we need. You just need to listen and be willing to follow through on that. So, so I think part of it is that authentic representation. And that is where the nothing about us without us is such a key element. And it's not just in disability issues. We, sh we people with disabilities can speak and should be allowed to speak on issues related to education, healthcare, civil rights, technology. Why? Because disability is everywhere. 
Those are very, very important points. And Maria, they bring me right now into the moment of the pandemic when uh, care and support for people with both intellectual and developmental disabilities um, have come to the fore. Have they been listened to? Have they been able to make their own points during the pandemic? And if not, what needs to happen? Um, so in, in asking your question, I am actually a little heartbroken at my own immediate response, which is no. Um, throughout the pandemic, we have seen that uh, people living in congregate settings like nursing homes, group homes, prisons and jails um, have been deeply, deeply impacted by COVID-19. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I'll give you some data. Uh, in the United States, only 1% of our population lives in long-term care facilities. 40% uh, of our nation's COVID deaths have been people with disabilities in long-term care facilities. So 1% of the population, 40% of our nation's close to 700,000 COVID deaths. And I think all of us on this call uh, know that those are probably undercounts. And so despite the reckoning that we are having with uh, institutionalized care, long-term care facilities, nursing homes, um, we have not received the support uh, that we have been advocating for uh, to really change these systems so that no one is forced into an institutional setting. Um, the disability community has known for decades that congregate settings are dangerous. And this is something that the entire nation has witnessed over the past year and a half. And yet, um, we are only now on the cusp of finally getting the support we've needed for the entirety of the pandemic. And if we'd had investments in home and community-based services before the pandemic started, not only would we have seen greater quality of life for people with disabilities, our families, and those who work to support us, we would have saved lives, both of disabled people and again, uh, care workers. So you, I'm thinking back actually, and, and this is resonating so much that I read so much about and actually wrote about prisons um, and nursing homes, but we wrote very little, I think, or we heard very little about congregate settings for people with disabilities. Dave, which brings me to another question about staffing issues. How has this, the, the crisis in staffing affected the disabled community? Staffing for I, caregiving. I, right, I, I think one of the, the, the toughest things is, is when you're talking about um, the movement of, of people and who and what is doing that and what it, what it turns, turns into. Um, and I think part of that is the idea of all right, who does most of that caregiving? So some of the some of the issue is is um, one for those who do have access to to personal care services that are that are paid, um, uh, whether through through a government program or even private programs, that becomes much more minimized because access to that is either not available or it's done with significant risk. But the other is what you see is is family members taking on many of these roles, and that. That happens actually even outside, but we see that exacerbated uh, by COVID, and 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 that becomes very tough a lot of times on on families in general. Um, we always give that statistic about the one in four or one in five people have disabilities, but if you talk about how many families have a family member with a disability, that number changes to closer to one in three. So wow. when you add in that caregiving element, we talk about the impact as a ripple on the family, um, and 
and for good and ill both, there's this expectation that family members will pick up that caregiving role. Um, but we, when you think about that, that that only works for folks who have the money and capacity to do that. When you have people who are trying to get by, we, we, we heard about retail workers. We, we heard about folks doing the Uber drivers and the Instacart and all those kinds of things. And they're taking two and three to try and bring money in. What does that mean when you have a family member with a disability who requires care and services? Um, so all of those things just start to, to, to build on each other. And I think COVID really um, highlighted um, where from a policy perspective, we have fallen down. Um, not We've been failing people with disabilities, we've been failing their families because the idea is we, we exist as a unit. So, um, and I, I do wanna pause a minute and, and um, cause we're, we're talking about this and, and I know there's a really great point, um, especially when we're talking about the perspective of who, of what we call it and who it is, um, mm -hmm. right? And I know Maria makes a great point about care and caregiving and I'd love for her to like, to, to, to expand on that just a little bit, Maria. Thank you, Day. Yeah, I think it's so important in these discussions that we point out how fraught care as a concept and word is for the disability community. So many of the institutions that we are forced into, so many of the policies that have um, oppressed us as well as shaped societal perceptions of people with disabilities uh, were created under the guise of care. Um, when you place someone in a nursing home, when you place someone in a group home, um, often it's often under the assumption that this person will be cared for, when really it's in these settings that we see huge violations of our rights and abuses. Um, we also see people being segregated from mainstream community and being segregated in employment and education because the the larger world is too dangerous for us and we need to be cared for um, and i think we can acknowledge how fraught this is while still pushing for greater dignity and recognition of care work uh, because part of this workforce crisis and labor crisis in this um, in this setting is because the the jobs of people engaged in direct support work and care work have not been valued for how important they are. Uh, the average person who um, works in direct support makes $12 an hour. Part of the reason we have this workforce shortage is because people are leaving these jobs for not only better paying jobs, but also jobs that come with things like health insurance, paid time off, uh, things that should be essential to anyone's anyone's career. Um, and so when we talk about people with disabilities and we talk about kind of the care economy, often the word that I use is support. Um, people with disabilities, <clears throat> we all need care, we also all need support. And people with disabilities may need different kinds of support to engage in everyday activities and, in, and to thrive in our communities, as we all do. Um, and it is this larger narrative that we need to be cared for that has often silenced us in this conversation. And so I'm really glad that, that we're having this, this conversation today. Yeah, so this I mean, wouldn't be harsh, sorry, you take care of pets, you don't take care of people. People need support to bring out their best selves. So I was going to say this is such a powerful way of bringing together the personal and the policy. And actually, Maria, I'd just like you to follow up a little bit more on this policy issue. Medicaid, I think, is is uh, cutting support 
um, from 40 hours to 20 hours per week for some people who need that support. Um, what does that mean? And what can the pushback be against such policy changes? So uh, I'm not sure what specific change you're referring to because Medicaid is a is a state-based system. So right. that may, may be specific to a, a specific state. Um, but I think overall, what we need is, is a greater investment in home and community-based services. Our current Medicaid and healthcare systems were set up with an institutional bias. And so even though we know that the vast majority of people with disabilities and older adults want to live in their homes with their families in their communities and age in place, if they need particular kinds of support, it's much easier to get those paid for um, via a nursing home or via a, a group home. And we shouldn't create, right now the system is, has just sort of suffocating bureaucracy in order for people to get the services and supports that they need to live at home. When you have a state that cuts hours uh, for an individual or for a group of people, it may mean that people are not able to get what they need <clears throat> to live at home or to be in their community or to do things like remain employed. Um, home and community-based services provide a range of supports. So it could mean helping someone get dressed in the morning, helping someone eat, or also providing someone with um, executive function reminders so that they can be successfully employed. Uh, community mental health supports are also embedded into HCBS. And when we think about the ways in which our law enforcement system is often used to manage mental health crises, um, if we got a greater investment into this system, we may see an overall reduction in, <clears throat> in our use of police to manage a mental health crisis and our admittance into prisons and jails. Um, I, I think consistently people with disabilities and our families speak out when there are cuts to hours, um, but ultimately states and service providers need the funding so that they don't have to make those cuts and place individuals and families in an impossible position um, in order to get the support they need. I should have introduced that by saying in some states, but that was very clarifying. Thank you so much, Maria. And Day, maybe you can take us a little bit further into this debate about institutionalization and the settings in which that occurs and talk further about the push to abolish those settings and alternatives you see to them and the advantages of those alternatives. Right, um, absolutely. I, I think um, Maria really opened it up and started here. It's like the idea is, if you were to ask anyone, what do you want to do? You want to live within a community, within your community, with your neighbors, with your friends. And that's the same for folks with disabilities. And and let's be honest, more than half folks are going to acquire a disability as they age. Once you hit over 60, I think the number goes to more than half of folks are going to have a disability. And if you ask any older adults, yes, they want to remain in their home. The problem currently is there, there is not really any funding available that allow folks to do it. As you age, you might need a little help with 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 um, with some of those kinds of of uh, of uh, supports that that Maria talked about. Sometimes you need a little help cooking. Some and, it's, and the idea is we think about these kinds of supports and things, and we we think about disability and we create this box of what it is and who gets it. And the fact is, is those kinds of supports, especially across the the age spectrum, um, are, are things that become beneficial for everyone. Um, now, because of that. The only place currently where you can find a lot of, thing, of that paid for is within Medicaid. Um, 
and one of the issues with 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 that is the fact that um, Medicaid has has limitations on income and it has limitations on the assets that you can have. So basically, to have the support to remain in your home as a person with a disability, regardless of age, um, you basically have to bring yourself down to poverty and. The, the result of that is we are stories about folks who have gotten divorced. To, that way, the person would have a low enough income and assets to get the support they needed. They've had spouses move out um, because of, because the way the system is built, we are punishing people. Um, and um, we heard just a little bit about that institutional bias, right? So yes, there's a there's a program to, to try to address that, and that's kind of enhanced federal funding for these for services that would transition folks who either wish to leave a nursing home or other institution and actually live in the in the community. And that's money follows the person. Money follows the person is an optional program for states. I think there's a little over, I want to say it's 33 um, as of this year, states that participate. Um, but um, that program and many others like that have waiting lists that are, that, that, um, and this is where I go, haven't added them all up, but I'm willing to bet we're at hundreds of thousands of people who are waiting to be able to have the services to let them stay home. I want to live in my own home. I want to be home. And they can't. And instead, what we are having is we are separating families. That's what this is. Um, just because of a disability, we are forcing entire families into poverty. Um, and the thing is, uh, it, it's hard when you talk about it, you know, but now think about that as a person with a disability. What do you do? How do you try to uh, to to address this when you're caught in this trap? And there are, um, you know, there are costs of living with a disability. There's the 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 direct care and issues, that, things that we talk about, like, uh, yeah, such as the the, per the 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 personal physical direct care. Um, but there's also the incidental things about what it relates to about uh, your work, your independence, your ability to, to get out. And I think there was a, a study, I want to say it was done with the University of Tennessee this last year. And it says what it costs to live with a disability is about 28% more than without a disability. That's for the exact same standard of living. Um, and and so what what happens is, the, is these families are not able to meet that. And the federal support services only exist um, if you can pauper yourself. Um, and so we're forcing people to to be alone. And, so and what we've been calling the, the, the caregiving crisis has led to a bunch of op-eds, and I can think of a number in our own newspaper and elsewhere, but have they served again to highlight the voices of the caregivers and the, and the supporters and the healthcare workers rather than the people receiving that support? Maria, perhaps you could pick that up. Okay. I'm smiling because you may be thinking of the same piece that I'm thinking of, and it was a piece that the Washington Post published recently um, that focused on the the spouses of men with spinal cord injuries, um, and the the piece was entirely focused on the caregiver. I think in some instances we didn't even learn the names of the the husbands, um, and I think. Uh, it's it's not that the the voices of care workers and spouses and family members are not important. Um, it's actually that that support work, caregiving, it, it is a <clears throat> it's a shared process. It's um, it's a it's a relationship that's entered into jointly, um, and so the 
each the voices of each entity, both the person who is uh, engaged in the support work and the per the person who is uh, the the consumer, the person with a disability, need to be valued in equal ways. Um, and we we consistently don't see that. Um, I think historically there have been assumptions that people with disabilities are the most vulnerable. Um, we are often referred, you know, I hear people say like, we are, we are going to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Okay. Um, and that happens quite a lot in these dynamics. And the reality is, is that uh, people with disabilities have all kinds of ways of communicating and we often just need folks to listen. I'd like to ask you both about the Build Back Better agenda and maybe Day, I can ask you first about whether you agree with the kinds of investments in Kagadi, in infrastructure and other elements on that agenda. And then uh, Maria, after that, I'd love to ask you about whether people with disabilities were part of uh, the process of coming up with this agenda. So Day, go ahead. Um, sure, I, I, I can give, I think the easiest thing is Yes, there are there are pieces in it, um, and you're going to hear me also go. But there's so much more. There's th th there's always funding, right? Funding's a start, and one of the toughest things, like I said, is the only place currently is within Medicaid. Medicaid requires shared costs between federal and state. So if there is more funding that goes to it from that federal side, fantastic. It helps with the programs. The tough part is those states still have to come up with with their matching amount to be for it to work effectively. So, so additional funding, great. It'll help, especially um, since a lot of it is, is um, the way it's written. It's budgeted out over ten years. Fantastic. Now, that addresses some the funding part. What well, we already know, funding is always only part of the issue. The things that we we described, right? There's a bias towards institutional um, caregiving. The the fact that it costs more. The impact on on um, on on the idea of uh, how do you afford to be able, not just financially, but the way the structure has been, you have to put yourself in poverty to be eligible for these kinds of programs means there's something wrong in the way the system is designed, right? It's forcing you to 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 basically divest yourself of everything to get the assistance. So there needs to be pieces um, in the structure that are designed to actually make it better. Um, the fact that we have, it's that money follows the person and similar style programs are optional means we have 33 states where folks can actually really get some of the support they need. That leaves several, very many that do not. Um, so so there are some things that are great. And I think funding is a big part. I think we're starting to look at some of the bias, but there still needs to be stuff in the underlying issues with regard to the system. And part of that also is is some of those cultural elements, like the idea of, of, of changing the concept of the idea of just a word of care to the idea of support, right? I'm, I'm not a pet to be cared for. I'm a person who needs support to, to live independently. The fact that uh, we don't value caregiving, if we think about it, who does most of this caregiving? It is women and it is people of color, you know, and, and we already know when it comes to valuing the work that is done by those communities, we are, there's a, a significant deficit. So part of it is also addressing the cultural changes. So, so it falls under my, it's a good start, but I'm one of these daring folks say, let's let's make some bigger change and also let's look at some of those structural inequities. And that requires changing some of the laws. And the moment you start doing that, um, there's a lot of risk because what does that mean and what does that mean long term? And what are the other potential negative changes that can come from that? Because there, there's 
there there continues to be that bias and the question of the value that people with disabilities offer to society, right? That's where the whole idea of care, they have to be cared for. Um, and that has become dangerous in COVID times, right? Well, they what do they contribute to society? So it's better to put uh, ventilators to use with other folks. So that question of value is is can cause problems later on when we talk about opening up and changing actual underlying tax law, actual underlying social security benefits, um, and as well as healthcare. So there's there's that, but unless you resolve that, we will constantly be forcing families apart and forcing folks with disabilities to make um, impossible choices. Maria, for the last question, I, I told you what it would be about, and that is bringing the voices of people who need support to the table in these policy decisions. Did you see it happen with this particular agenda? Do you have optimism going ahead about how it can happen? Yes and yes. So stark contrast to my, my first answer. Um, I'm so glad. So, yes, uh, the disability community was absolutely involved in shaping this agenda. And I, I also want to be very clear and acknowledge that um, the disability community was involved in coalition with women's uh, gender, women's groups, gender justice groups, as well as uh, labor organizations. And um, that kind of coalition um, has not it has not really happened in the past. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to um, push towards a piece of legislation that not only benefits people with disabilities, but also benefits workers. And, you know, I know Day wants something bolder, but I also don't want to minimize the uh, possibilities that the Build Back Better agenda and the Better Care, Better Jobs Act within it actually creates. Um, just to go through some numbers, the president <laughs> promised $400 billion in the American Jobs Plan as a part of the Build Back Better agenda. That number in current um, congressional proposals has been reduced to $190 billion. And so right now, disability groups, gender justice groups, labor groups are working together um, to increase that funding as much as possible because what the Better Care, Better Jobs Act could do if passed in the Build Back Better agenda is potentially increase access to HCBS for 3.2 million people, create 500,000 new jobs for direct support workers. And these are jobs with job protections, with things like health insurance, and that also are paid better wages. Um, it also will enable many people, many family caregivers who have had to leave the workforce an opportunity to come back into the workforce and provide alternatives to unpaid family caregiving. Um, you know, we, we talk about the Build Back Better agenda and the Better Care, Better Jobs Act as a jobs bill, and typically we emphasize the worker perspective. Uh, but actually getting access to HCBS also uh, creates possibilities for disability employment, not only of the disabled people who are using these services. Day pointed out that the majority of these workers are women of color. Many of them are disabled women of color specifically. Um, and so we could we could see improvements in disability employment across, across the board. Um, you know, when I think about what people with disabilities, our families, and those who work to support us are forced to do, it's its really to live life without being able to plan for our futures. Day has pointed out many times that our systems force us into poverty, 
you can't plan for a future if you can't um, save money uh, to buy a house. Uh, you can't plan for needed health maintenance and medical supports if, if you can't have health insurance. Um, you can't plan for your child's future if, if you don't have enough money to get by in the first place. And I think one of the things that the Better Care, Better Jobs Act is begin to make the HCBS system robust enough to support disabled people, workers, and our families' dreams. No one should be denied the right to dream for our future because our system isn't robust enough to support it. Wow, that's a, a, an amazing note to finish on. And I just want to thank you both, Day and Maria, for helping us to change the narrative a bit and bringing by bringing both a policy expertise and personal perspective to this important discussion. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Here now to continue this conversation about caregiving and support is author and activist Leah Lakshmi Piepshna Samarasinghe. Leah, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me, Francis. I'm really happy to be here. We are delighted. And before we start our conversation, I would like to give a brief visual description of myself Great. for anyone who's just joining the show. So I am a white woman. I have brown collar length hair and brown eyes. I am wearing a full colored jacket and I'm sitting full, uh, sorry, sitting in front of a white bookcase full of books. I think my accent tells you that my, a little bit about my background. I'm a dual US UK citizen. And over to you, Leah. Love that description. Uh, my name is Leah Lakshmi, Piepchnithamersinga, <laughs> I use she and they pronouns. Um, what do I look like? I am a sand-colored mixed-race Sri Lankan and white 40-something non-binary femme. Um, my hair's wet, so my curl pattern's not great, but I've got brown and purple curly hair on one side of my head. And I'm sitting behind a very plain white wall, which is not usual for me. But um, I'm joining you from Toronto, which is on the territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, um, Huron-Widot, and Mississauga of New Credit people. So I'm in a friend's very nice, but very plainly painted room, but very happy to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. And what a powerful conversation we've just had and a way to jump off. I would like to ask you about mutual aid in the disability community. It's something you've written about. And can you tell us a little bit, give us some context about the history of mutual aid in the disability community? Absolutely. Um, I think it's a really important thing to talk about. And I want to say it's not, I'm not, I don't think that anyone who's talking about mutual aid and collective care that disabled people do for each other is saying that we don't need personal support workers as well or things like that. It's really about a diversity of tactics. But what I want to lift up is that I think that there's an idea out there that um, Maria and Dave just spoke to really powerfully, that disabled people are these passive recipients of care, that we're just kind of waiting around, we're these invalids in beds, you know, we can't do anything for ourselves. And the reality is, is that disabled people keep each other alive all the time. You know, we keep each other alive, we survive really dire situations. Um, and that's true for disabled people who have really rich communities. It's also true for people who are in institutions who are fighting back and supporting each other all the time, right? And I think something that I really wanna lift up is just that we're not, um, we're not waiting for somebody else to save us, we're saving each other. And that there's so many ways that as disabled people, we look out for each other. A lot of disabled people I know, myself included, have had the experience that whether you were born with a disability or you acquired it, a lot of times people who are able-bodied kind of forget about your disability and they're not checking for you. They're not keeping an eye out for what you need. Whereas other disabled people, um, 
you know, I had a friend who once joked, yeah, I could be projectile vomiting and I will still ask you if you're okay, if you have what you need, if you need me to pick up something at the grocery store later. There's a solidarity and an awareness that disabled people can show to each other and a real understanding of each other's lived experiences and needs that's really crucial. We are the experts on our own experience and we remember each other when a lot of people have forgotten each other. Whether we call it mutual aid or we just call it, you know, hi, I check in on my neighbor, it's something that we do. And I also want to lift up the term collective care, which people may have or may not have heard of before, but it's something that disability justice activists like Stacey Park Milburn, Mia Mingus, Patty Byrne, um, myself started using maybe 10 or 12 years ago is the first place I heard of it where we were like, you know, there's also an assumption that as disabled people, not only are you a passive recipient of care, you're receiving care from able-bodied people. And we were like, actually, what does it look like when we shift that narrative? And we really talk about how as disabled people, we do things and we take care of ourselves and each other. And, you know, I one of the first places where we used that term was at a conference called the Allied Media Conference in Detroit in 2010. And we had this whole crew of disabled, mostly black and brown, mostly queer and trans people. And we were like, great, okay, we're just gonna do the problem solving and the you know resourcefulness that disabled people always have. Where my friend who's autistic, but doesn't have a mobility disability was like, okay, the food's two miles away. I'll take my friend's spare wheelchair. I'll walk it there. I'll fill it up with sandwiches. I'll bring it back. Um, we used all of our different skills to take care of each other. And I think that's really important to lift up um, as we're having this conversation about care, because Maria and Dave both really powerfully just spoke about the ways in which we're not included in the conversation and we're seeing as people who have to be done for rather than people who are doing for ourselves all the time and keeping ourselves alive. Well, on that very point about doing for yourselves and, and having to be done for, there have been all sorts right. of concerns raised about abuse, the potential for uh, taking advantage of people in congregate settings or just being cared for. Could you speak to some of those concerns and what we know about them? Absolutely. Um, disabled people are abused all the time. The statistics across the board for people with various kinds of disabilities are incredibly high, right? Um, there's a sense of vulnerability. There's a sense of if you, you know, there's that thing that that belief that Maria was speaking to and they were speaking to of oh, well, you know, your life's not really worth living. So, and that kind of leads to an attitude of like, well, you've got to take what you can get. If you want to accept care, it doesn't mean that you don't have autonomy, you don't have rights. You don't get to set the conditions for your own care. You don't get to say, you don't get to consent and say, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. This is what I say yes to. This is what I don't say yes to. Um, I'm somebody who first came into organized disability activism in the 1990s um, in what we call the psychiatric survivors movement, which is people who have experienced mental health disabilities or altered states, um, many of whom had experience living in institutions and fighting back against enormous amounts of abuse. And that was some of the number one things we talked about was that the right to have care that doesn't involve force, abuse, or harm. And this is, those conditions are ripe within so many institutions because, you know, there's nobody's watching. A lot of the time we might be under guardianship or conservatorship where our legal rights are taken away. Um, some of the number one things that disabled people have fought for over the past decades of disability movement has been for us to have civil rights, human rights, the rights to patient advocates in hospitals and congregate settings, the right to have a lawyer, the right to sign yourself out against medical advice and be like, you know what, I am going to live on my own and take my chances. 
Um, all of this stuff is huge. And I would say, and there's kind of a segue to the interlinked struggles of domestic workers, care workers, and people with disabilities. Um, I want to lift up Hand in Hand, which is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. They've done an amazing job of being like these struggles are linked. And some of what they say too is they're like, if domestic work and personal support work is seen as unskilled labor, where you don't even, you barely get minimum wage some places. In Iowa, I was just, there was someone on Twitter who was a disabled woman who's like, yeah, the state gives my care attendant $7 an hour, right? I live in Seattle, which is the first fight for 15 city in the United States. We got a raise to $15 minimum wage in 2009, sorry, 2014. It's been going up gradually ever since. Um, but until two years ago when we had domestic workers ordinance, rights ordinance, um, care workers were left out of it. So my friends who work with personal support workers were like, yeah, we're getting yelled at when we try and hire people on Seattle Queer Exchange to be our care workers because the state gives us $12, right? Um, meanwhile, um, there's retail workers in Seattle who get $18 an hour, and they should, but if you could make $18 an hour scooping ice cream versus $12 an hour doing really intense and skilled care labor for somebody, you might as a worker be like, I'm going to go someplace else and make that money and work a little bit less intensely in some ways. So when you're offering really not good wages, and when there's no, when so many places don't have domestic workers' rights ordinances, they also don't have any laws around like, hey, so if you're going to be working with disabled people, here's what you do and don't do in terms of getting active consent, in terms of respecting the person's choices. And, you know, in terms of just listening to the person and being like, okay, you want it that way, or, you know, you have a right to a private life, to a sexuality, to relationships. Um, in the absence of all of that, you've set up a situation where really a lot of the time as disabled folks accepting care, whether it's paid care or from our friends, our partners, our parents, we are set up to be like, well, if you want to go to the bathroom, you kind of can't say no if I'm talking to you or treating you in a way that is abusive or disrespectful, because otherwise I'll just leave you to sit in your own mess, right? None of this has to be this way, but it is how it is. Yeah, keep going. So yeah, you're giving us now this fantastic history and understanding. And then along comes the pandemic, right? And we're all mm -hmm. now talking about a caregiving crisis. We've been talking about federal policy. Can you talk to me specifically about the impact of the pandemic on the debate you're talking about now, on our understanding of what the needs are? Can you say that a little bit more clearly? Yes. Can you talk yeah, to us about or... the impact of the pandemic? on the debate you're talking about and what our understanding of needs have become through the pandemic. Sure. So I guess I'll start by saying I, I, lo I love and I'm kind of amazed by the ways in which the terms care economy, care work, care crisis are now in the mainstream because there are things that disabled people and people who are caregivers have been talking about for years and years and years. You know, ask anybody who's somebody in midlife, who's, you know, in the sandwich generation, who's taking care of maybe elderly or disabled parents, who's taking care of themselves as a chronically ill person, and who's taking care of kids. They're like, this is not new. Um, but it's been something that for the most part um, has not because it's a feminized and gendered and racialized and disabled struggle, it's not really broken into mainstream discourse. But now you've got it on the front page of the New York Times. You've got, the first time I saw President Biden talking about the care economy, I was like, this is a very different state of affairs than we had very recently. Um, I'm glad that we're talking about it more. Um, I want to echo what Jay and Maria spoke to, which is that as disabled people, we are often still left out of the discourse. We 
we've been talking about this for decades and caregivers, many of whom are also disabled, have been talking about workers' rights and the need for support for caregivers for decades. And something I want to say is that, you know, echoing what Day said before, there's a real narrative, I think it was Day, but in, in general, there's a real narrative that's really ableist that's like, um, oh, it's really hard to be a caregiver. It's horrible taking care of my disabled spouse. God, my life is terrible. And I want to flip that and say that caregiving is hard, skilled work. And it doesn't have to be hard. It, it's hard because we live in an ableist system that either doesn't pay you or deeply underpays and under supports you for doing that work and that doesn't respect disabled lives, right? So, but I don't necessarily see that narrative coming up in some of the discussions that are happening right now about the care crisis. And a little bit I'm rolling my eyes because I'm just like, Anybody who does housework has known there's been a care work a care crisis for very many long times. And quickly, I just want to drop in a statistic, which is that because I teach a lot about this, um, there was a great New York Times article last year that came out. So Maria spoke to the fact that um, the original funding that was proposed um, was an additional four hundred billion dollars for home and community-based services, and now there's talk of dropping it to two hundred billion. Okay, so. Um, in 2013, the estimated work of unpaid, the estimated worth of unpaid care labor in the United States was $470 billion. There's already more. That was almost a decade ago. As of 2020, if women, and this is how the New York Times did it, were paid for the unpaid care work that we do, it would be one point at minimum wage, it would be $1.5 trillion in the States. So I think wow. what we're seeing too is that, you know, $400 billion is obviously not peanuts. It's a lot of money. But when you actually look I, there's a quote that I love that says, care labor is the labor that makes all of the labor possible. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that like, when all of a sudden, you know, you can't, people are walking off the job because they're like, I'm not going to almost die for $7 an hour. When people desperately need care, when we're talking about the ways in which congregate settings have been death traps. And then we look at the dollars and cents of it, we're like, actually, we need a huge move of money from the, from the military industrial complex or other places to the care economy. And 400 billion is a good start, but it actually doesn't go far enough because the need is so deep. So the pandemic, just one follow on that, it's been so hard on the disabled community. And yet, has it also been something of a leveler? I mean, people have had to learn to wear masks. They've had difficulty traveling. They've had to face inconveniences that they're unfamiliar with. Do you see that as anything positive coming out of that experience, that lived experience for able people? I think yes and no. I mean, what in the it, with disabled folks, I know we we joke, but we're not really joking that we're like, wow, the whole world's disabled now. The whole world has had to like really experience the disabled reality of a pandemic. And it's mixed. I think it's bittersweet. You know, I think that I speak for so many disabled people I know where we're like, wow, the things that we were fighting for for years. Like I I remember I was, you know, asked to speak at an international conference um, right before the pandemic in 20. 2019 or early 2020 and I was like you know I'm dislocating all my joints so I actually can't fly six hours but can you zoom me in and this is a conference that's at a Hilton right and they're like oh we don't know if we have the technology for that oh no there's no way we could do that that's just wild and fast forward three months and the whole world is on zoom the whole world not the whole world because there's lots of people who are not middle class who are like nope you still got to go to work and you got to expose yourself to covid but there's lots of white collar workers who are being told oh yeah of course you can work from home no problem oh zoom we're figuring it out oh captioning we're figuring it out um and i think that something that's been spoken of a lot in the disabled community is that we're like as countries have this rush to be like okay great we're back to normal 
that the access hacks that have been mainstreamed because now able people need them are going to go away and we're going to be back to where we were before. We're not going to do that without a fight. We absolutely aren't. Um, disabled people fight really hard all the time for what we need. But so there's a bit of that. And but, you know, I don't underestimate the way ableism works, where people might be like a lot of people who aren't disabled might be like, well, that was terrible. Let's just go back to business as usual and forget about you. And I think that it remains to be seen what's going to happen. Um, I do, however, also think that there's a lot of people who are not going to forget um, the mutual aid that helped them survive. That, And I want to go back to that kind of initial point that you're bringing up about like, what is disabled mutual aid? Um, Stacey Park Milburn said, no one is going to save us as disabled people, so we have to save ourselves. And we saw that all the time in the pandemic. Um, my friend and collaborator and co-author of our last book, Beyond Survival, Ijeri Dixon, has a wonderful essay in Truth Out, where she's like, yeah, you know, my, my neighbor down the hallway was like, you know, I know you've got asthma. I'm going to wipe down all of the buttons on the elevator with alcohol twice a day. She's like, we looked out for each other. We didn't wait for anyone to come save us. We knew we had to look out for each other, you know, as majority Black folks in a building in Brooklyn. And she's like, this is what we've always done. Um, I think that a lot of us are going to keep doing that. I think there's a lot of people who I've spoken to who are not disabled, who did kind of wake up and be like, wow, germs are a thing. Masking is a thing. Who, are, who actually sometimes have been like, thank you for teaching us disabled skills. Because I'm like, disabled people have been wearing masks for a long time. We, we know the good ones. Um, and who are going to remember how the ways that we turn towards each other helps, are helping us survive. Um, in terms of how, I mean, I'm just thinking about like on an institutional level, whether that keeps going, you're already seeing everyone I know in academia is being forced back to work in person, even though then there's outbreaks of COVID and Delta in their students and themselves. And we're talking people, you know, there was that article in the Atlantic about the guy who just had a heart transplant who was told, oh no, you have to go back to teach 300 kids in person. Mm -hmm. um, to lots of disabled staff I know who are like, well, it was you know virtual all last year and it wasn't an issue, but oh, I've got to be in a small unventilated room again, even though I have no immune system. Um, because it's about money in the bottom line and a lot of universities, just speaking for one thing, are like, well, we can't charge the tuition that we're charging and have it on Zoom. Um, so I think what remains to be seen is there, there needs to be massive changes and we have to keep pushing for it. So Leah, one last question. I'm afraid it has to be a quick one. You're a poet, you're a performer. You speak with such humor as well as resilience about these things. Talk to us about your, the creative means you use to get this message across. I'm afraid it has to be quick. Well, really quickly, I would say that I think that one big tactic that disability justice has used is storytelling and creativity. Um, Patty Byrne, who co-founded Sins Invalid and is a founding parent of disability justice, once said that, you know, she's like, I can do a workshop, sure, but I can also do a piece of art that deals with people's fears and desires and histories of disability and gets in their soul and makes them get it in five minutes. So I'm going to do that. And I think that often people think of disability as this dry thing that's someplace else. But when we tell our real stories, when I'm like, yeah, my mom was a working class girl with polio who never called herself disabled. But I'm a second generation disabled person who's moving out of her legacy and I can talk about those stories. That's what makes people click in. That's what makes people even willing to identify as disabled when we've been taught to fear it and be ashamed of it because it's so dangerous. So I want us to keep telling our stories because that's what's going to keep us alive too.
Well, Leah, I just want to thank you enormously for telling your story following Maria and Dave. But this has been an extraordinary uh, insight. And thank you for telling it from your perspective. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.